Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. The U.S., and particularly the western portions of the U.S., have experienced some of the worst wildfires on record in recent years. Today, we'll take a look at some of the laws that govern wildfire management. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by Professor Stephen Miller of the University of Idaho in Boise. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks so much for having me. Talking about fires, how have things been there where you live in, in Idaho this year? Well, things have been actually pretty good in Idaho this year. You know, a couple of years ago, we had the largest fire in the country, the Pioneer Fire, out near a place called Idaho City. But uh, this year, you know, most of the fires actually been coming over from the, the smoke's been coming over from California, Oregon. Uh, that's actually affected our quality of life here. Uh, pretty significantly as it, that, that smoke kind of comes out throughout uh, and covers the entire western United States. While the fires, of course, are most uh, severely felt in the local communities, some of the effects can reach as far as across the entire country. Yeah. And, you know, that's really one of the, the big things that some of the public health experts are looking at. You know, there's something called uh, PM 2.5, or which is the, the, the kind of the, the really tiny particles. And nationally, that, that's been going down through, through regulatory effects, and that's the stuff that often creates a lot of cancer risk and stuff. But what we're seeing is that in these uh, western cities, very far from the fires, places like Boise or even Denver, uh, and even into the Midwest, you're seeing increases in PM 2.5 that are quite staggering. And a recent study from a research institute at Stanford noted that the increase in 2.5 particulate matter could lead to upwards of several hundred deaths, uh, especially in elderly and vulnerable populations in each of these major West Coast cities like, you know, San Francisco, Portland, et cetera. And then you would see sort of that um, effect also throughout the, the rest of the Western United States. Of course, we're familiar with some of these awful fires that have been in the news in the last two years. Uh, but how bad has the fire seasons been of late? I'll give you just a couple of statistics, right? So um, let's just think kind of broadly the last couple of decades, right? So you compare, say, like the last couple of decades to, say, what was happening in the 70s or 80s. And there's one study that looked at the fires in the 70s and 80s to sort of the 90s to today. And that study found that overall we're talking about upwards of four times more fires generally in the Western United States in the last decade. And it just is just blowing up. California and Idaho tend to be the two largest wildfire states in terms of the, the number of ignitions. But in California, eight of the 10 largest fires have been in the last decade. Seven of the 10 most expensive fires have been in the last decade. Any place you look in the West where there's a population center, you're seeing this massive increase in, in wildfire over the last decade. We'll mostly be talking about the laws, but perhaps you could quickly touch on some of the causes. Why is this escalation happening in the West? Yeah, so one of the reasons is climate change, right? So um, it's hotter and drier, more drought. We're going to see that escalating. So that's definitely one of them. Uh, another is you know, management of the federal lands, right? That's another that you'll, you've been hearing a lot about in the political conversation. And I think a third one is just more people are living out here. You know, there's just a lot more people in the West and they're experiencing it. And so they're thinking about fire that's been on the landscape for a long time. They're experiencing it and concerned about it. 
you make a an important point, which is that there's wildfires that are happening, and then there's wildfires that are happening and affecting people that are burning homes that are actually leading to human deaths. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there can be fires, you know, um, there was a big fire here in Idaho a couple of years ago, um, something called the Pioneer Fire. It was the largest fire in the United States, but it was in the middle of nowhere, right? So people didn't care that much about it. Probably nobody heard about it. But the things that are really affecting people today, right, the things that people are caring about are those that are close to their home. And that's kind of what's unique and what's really changed a lot over the last two or three decades. So it's a combination of increasing fires and increasing proximity to these dry, forested lands. Every year, the census puts out the list of the fastest growing cities in the United States, and they're almost always in the West or the South, right? And with regard to the Western cities, you know, they're moving into areas that uh, are often abutting um, areas that historically have burned, right? These are, fire is part of the landscape of the West, and it just always has been. But a lot of people moving out here, they may not know that. There's always been fire. Fire's increasing because of climate change. But it's also about people coming into a fire landscape and having to kind of figure out what that means to live with fire. You mentioned management. Who is actually responsible when it comes to managing forests? All right. So, yeah, so there's, there's five federal agencies that you know, own most of the land out here or have some sort of wildfire components. You have these hodgepodge of agencies that own different pieces of land. And regardless of who's going to be responsible for that fire, if it's a fire on you know, BLM land, it's often sort of in a grazing area or rangeland. If it's in a forest service area, it's probably timber. But at the end of the day, it's the federal government that's going to take care of putting that fire out, you know, technically the, the suppression cost, right? And so who's the federal government? That's you and me, the taxpayer, right? We are the ones who are paying for that suppression cost. So the responsibility lies at the federal level. Maybe you can give us a quick backstory on how that happened or what were the, you know, the early laws that, that put this regime in place? Really, it started with a, a big fire here in Idaho, something called the Big Burn in 1910. And, um, you know, the Forest Service had just started a few years before that, and nobody really knew what the Forest Service was or what its intent was going to be. And when the Big Burn came along, it burned an enormous amount of northern Idaho and western Montana. And people back east were just shocked, right? They weren't used to the idea that forests would catch on fire like this. And in 1911, there was something called the Weeks Act that was passed, and the Weeks Act did a bunch of different things, but one of the things that it did is it gave the Forest Service money to suppress fires. And everybody thought that was a good thing in the wake of the big burn, you know? Uh, and by the 1930s, there was a policy called the 10 a.m. rule, which was that if there was a fire, that we were going to try to snuff that thing out by 10 a.m. the next day. And take that up to today, by the late 20th century, you were looking at a situation where Typically, about 15% of the Forest Service budget was going to be through um, was going to be suppression. Bring that up to today, uh, we're now looking at over half, sometimes 60% in any year of the Forest Service's budget is just suppression costs. When you say suppression cost, I, I mean I can think of putting out the fire, the the firefighters. You know, the people in the helicopters dumping uh, liquid or whatever uh, flame retardants they have. Isn't there more to it as well? 
there's these kind of three things that the agencies do, right? Which is, um, you know, they call it me- mechanical treatments, right? <laughs> they literally go in with like bulldozers, right? And like just bulldoze over stuff that would otherwise catch on on fire. They can actually do a prescribed burn or they can go out and sort of use herbicides or chemicals, right? The agencies in a recent GAO report noted that there's about 60 million acres out there that need some sort of uh, fire mitigation. They are only have the money to do that for about one to two million acres a year. Okay, so you can see that. Look, if you're thinking about managing the land, it is true that we know that there's wildfire risk out there, and we are not fully addressing that through these various means of trying to reduce shrubbery and underbrush and all the things that we know tend to cause fire. Is there even one thought about this? Is there some controversy or alternate? opinions on whether or not this type of brush removal is long-term more beneficial or more cost-saving? The biggest controversy here is, you know, when once you start talking about going into a, a forest uh, or into a rangeland and somehow doing some sort of a treatment, environmentalists have been very skeptical since the 70s of whether that is just going to mean the timber industry going in and, uh, you know, taking advantage of that forest. And there really has been a a significant lack of trust. Uh, And the agencies are really caught in the middle, to be honest with you. The agencies, whether they're a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, I think that the the people in those agencies want to do the right thing, right? But that is, they are caught in the middle of a fight between the timber industry and the environmentalists who really don't trust each other. Uh, And that's been a, a major issue for the past half century. Why don't we get back to the legal regime? You mentioned the Weeks Act in the early 1900s. Why don't you bring us up to date a little bit on newer laws? Yeah, there's really kind of two big federal laws to know. Um, The first is the Healthy Forest Restoration Act of 2003, sometimes called HEFRA. And then the, um, the Flame Act, which was passed in 2009. And each of these were in the wake of what everybody thought were bad wildfire seasons. But it turned out that, you know, those bad wildfire seasons in this last decade became the new normal. So HEFRA, one of the things that it did is it created a a system called the Community Wildfire Protection Plan, which was really, that's the legacy of that act. And that was a way to try to get people together at the local level to create plans for wildfire preparedness and what you know a lot of people in the in the industry would call being a fat a fire adapted community when you say local level are we talking state or municipality yeah it's a great question um the cwpp process the actual legislation says that it can be convened by a community and what that allows it to do is the community definition is very flexible so it could be a homeowners association it could be a county um, and you, and also there's the idea that you could scale these so you could have sort of, you know, one nested inside another. So it, it's a very flexible framework uh, for those that have used it well. And then uh, in 2009, under the FLAME Act, you got to love the, the acronyms, under the Federal Land Assistance Management and Enhancement Act, what that did was that actually created a, uh, a framework that was trying to get the federal, state, and local governments all on the same page. And it forced all those parties to come together, all those federal agencies we talked about earlier, state governments in the West, local governments, and they forced them to create something that in 2014 was put out and called the Cohesive Strategy. Okay, 
And the cohesive strategy really creates this multi-prong approach as to how federal, state, and local governments are going to try to play together nicely to address wildfire. So the FLAME Act, what it added was some type of national standards for these forestry projects? Well, you know, really it created sort of a, a three-prong approach that, and I think we're going to get into this a little bit more, but, you know, if the federal government was out there suppressing the fire, partly it was the local governments that were creating kind of the problem because they were entitling all of this development right next to these forests where previously you hadn't had any communities there. So the idea was, well, okay, can we just agree on what the big picture items are that we should be thinking about? So the cohesive strategy sort of lays out three things, right? You should, you know, restore and maintain landscapes. That's one of them, right? Okay, so we're going to think about this on a landscape level. Wait, what do you mean by restore landscapes? Yeah, <laughs> so this turned out to be kind of a big issue, right? Because, um, you know, if you looked at a hillside uh, in California, say, in the mid-19th century, you'd see a couple trees, uh, you know, say the, the foothills of the Sierra or up into the Sierras, right? You'd see a couple trees, um, you know, here and there, but it would often be largely sort of, uh, you know, grassland. Um, because of the suppression of fire, you look at that same hillside today, and very often it'll be covered with trees. So you're saying, and maybe for many of us, this is counterintuitive, but having a, a lot of trees in a landscape that perhaps didn't historically could be seen as problematic? That's right. And that's kind of, you know, what when you hear people talk about, well, why are the fires bigger? Uh, mm -hmm. Part of the issue is climate change. Definitely, climate change is a huge driver. But another thing is that, you know, historically, maybe there'd be, you know, maybe... 10% of that, that hillside covered with trees. And now you're looking at 90% of it covered with, covered with trees. Which is kind of ironic because you think of trees as this natural mitigator to climate change, and yet we may not want that formation in that particular location. That's right. You know, I mean, we're talking about trees. You know, one of the, the major ways to address climate change, like you say, is to use forests as sinks, right? For, as, those, they, as scientists would say, for, for that carbon. But uh, Western forests, they need to burn. They've always burned. The, the trees, um, many of the, the, the trees that grow in the Western United States need fire to actually for, uh, you know, to, to continue their life cycle. In prep for this, I was reading that there are certain plants, and I'm probably saying this wrong, pyrophytic plants that may only be able to reproduce if there's a fire. Yeah, things like lodgepole pines, uh, you know, they actually need the fire to help open up the cones and uh, help the seeds get out. Well, before we jump too deep into botanical science, um, maybe let's go back to the, the three prongs. The first you mentioned was restoring landscapes. What's next? Yeah, so that sort of cohesive strategy right, puts out the, the three prongs to restore and maintain landscapes. And then the second is fire-adapted communities. Um, so that's basically... We need to create communities where people expect for there to be fire and that they have been built from the ground up uh, to anticipate that fire will be on this landscape. Does that mean the spacing of the homes or building homes that are particularly fire safe or a combination? You know, it, it's really kind of uh, two prongs. There's, there's 
when you're building these new communities, right, and you have all these new communities being built in the West with this sort of rapid migration that's been happening, you know, when you build those new communities, you build them from the ground up in a way that they are uh, able to address uh, fire risk, both in terms of the preservation of property value and the property itself, but also life. And then the other issue is you is that it's not just about the initial building because wildfire risk is something that needs to be maintained over the course of uh, while people are living there. So you need people to also be engaging in this and be continually educating themselves about the environment and uh, actually maintaining their property in a way that is uh, fire adapted. And the third prong, Stephen, that's about how we respond to the fires once they're a reality that we have to deal with. The federal government, you know, they're out there, you know, dropping the, the, the fire retardant. They've got the hotshot crews and all that stuff. But the question is, how is that going to respond to the local, the local government? You know, the local government, they've got, you know, maybe five or ten, um, you know, firefighting crews. How are they going to coordinate with that federal government? And believe it or not, up until maybe the last decade, those responses really were not that coordinated. I mean, people would talk to each other. They'd, you know, try to figure things out. But uh, it was all sort of in the heat of the moment. So it might be a courtesy that if you're part of a federal crew, you might you might think to call the local uh, fire department on your way into town. Yeah, exactly. Right. So the idea is, well, you know, maybe maybe instead of just like, you know, doing that, like, you know, 10 minutes before you drop the fire retardant, maybe we should actually talk to each other, um, you know, in anticipation of the fact that there's going to be a, uh, an incident, uh, especially as things we've seen sort of these larger wildfires. So what's the, what are the, what's the new paradigm? Is there a requirement? Is there a, a platform that enables these fire departments to communicate more easily, a protocol? Well, that's a great question. And really what the cohesive strategy did was it, it's really put in, in place a, a framework, right? And it tried to encourage these local uh, governments and state governments and, and the federal government to all talk together. But the reality is that it's still a very uh, loose affiliation, and you still see the local governments, uh, the state government, and the federal government all working, not necessarily at odds, but in different ways that don't always necessarily work together. That's why you'll see a lot of people actually go back to the idea from HEFRA of the Community Wildfire Protection Plan as kind of this way of getting all these people in the same room and that sort of being the framework for doing it. Yeah, we might we might imagine that firefighting was getting done, you know, maybe more like the Coast Guard, that there's a, a fire guard, uh, but really it's, you know, a, kind of this patchwork of federal, state, and local. Yeah, and, you know, even between agencies, even if you think about the federal government, even that is a, a, a patchwork, right? Um, up until several decades ago, each agency was kind of working in its own vein to address the, the various fire issues. And it was really only with the creation of the National Interagency Fire Center, actually here in Boise, where you started having those agencies work together to allocate resources across the country on the basis of the risk that uh, was occurring in different places throughout the country. Firefighting itself and, and the policy 
that that goes into that. You mentioned a few things. Let's start with the general policy for for firefighting. Yeah, well, you know, people are still talking about changing the idea of suppression, but at the end of the day, when a fire is barreling down a hillside at a community, people are going to expect that someone's going to come along with a plane and throw some retardant out there and that there's going to be a bunch of people there to save their houses. We just haven't got to the point, and maybe we never should get to the point as a society, That's this is a deeply sort of ethical question, I think, of whether we just accept that someone has moved into an area of wildfire risk um, and you know they will, they will bear the consequences of having to taken that risk. And until we get to that point, what we have is we have a situation where the federal government is still largely going to come and engage in suppression. And it has sort of three big tools. They have the, the planes, right? But the planes um, have to be highly coordinated. The, the planes and the helicopters and all that stuff that you see, the, which is, you know, really cool stuff and amazing stuff, right? But that's a highly coordinated thing. You can't just call that in immediately. And then, you know, there's the sort of the line firefighters. Uh, every year there are people that are hired as kind of one-offs. Um, and then there are about 10 groups that are called the hotshots. And those are the people that do... Um, historically, the most sophisticated, they are professional fire, wildland firefighters. So this is like the, the SEAL teams of the, of the firefighting world. Yeah. I mean, what these people do is crazy, right? I mean, they, they, um, it, it is an almost type of you know, military precision of what these people are doing. Um, and what's interesting is, is that historically what the hotshots did is they would be dropped out of a plane, parachute in to an area in the middle of nowhere. This was the, you know, 50 years ago or 40 years ago. This is what hotshots were doing, right? They'd go into the middle of nowhere, snuff out a fire before it becomes a big fire. But the fascinating part is that today, most of those people are actually being deployed on the front lines of urbanization. And those are much riskier fires for them. They're being thrown into a situation, like I said, where you got a fire coming down a steep slope and you got some homes and people are expecting them to go in there uh, and save their homes. Uh, so you've got a lot more emotion, you've got um, a lot more expectation, and that puts them in, in a, a real yeah. bind. And sometimes expectations that may not be reasonable under the circumstances. That's right. A quick break for those who are listening for MCLE credit in California. The code for this conversation is... 215281. Again, that's 215281. And now back to the interview. Why don't we talk a little bit about priorities for the firefighters? Are there official codified rules? Normally, the way that it's prioritized is that, um, you know, you're trying to save lives and then uh, property and then uh, resources. But those are the, 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 the typical order of operations, right? So we're going to utilize those, those sort of the best resources typically for um, the preservation of life far more than, than property or those other resources out there. That seems uh, both reasonable and probably somewhat difficult to do in, in real time when you see a house that, that may or may not be in a dangerous position and, and not necessarily knowing if there's someone inside of it. 
Exactly, right? That's where it just gets really, really tough for these, fi- these firefighters and can get extremely costly. There was a, um, a study out of the University of Wyoming several years ago that noted suppression costs for one house had been over $200,000 to try to beat back a, a wildfire that was coming towards a, a, a rural house. And you think about that, if you're that property owner, right? Yeah, I mean, you want that person to be coming there, right, for, <laughs> to help you. But um, societally, if we're going to spend $200,000 on every wildfire when we're talking about 4 million acres burned in California alone, another 2 million acres in Oregon and Washington, we're beginning to talk about an exorbitant amount of money. It becomes a very tough issue. Yeah, and so why don't we touch on the allocation on how resources are allocated. Is that being managed, as you said, through that center in Boise, the Fire Management Center? Who's, who's deciding who gets these scarce and expensive resources? Yeah, so the National Inter- Interagency Fire Center runs something called the National Interagency Coordination Center. And that, you know, if you've ever seen those pictures of like, you know, NASA sending somebody to the moon, right, or, or whatever, right, there's just those rows of, of desks with big screens up there. It looks just like that. A command center uh, in, in uh, Houston. Exactly, right? So it, it, it's set up exactly like that with these big massive screens. And what it does, and what they do is they, they meet every day these representatives of the different agencies during fire season. And they decide, they say, okay, we have scarce resources. We know there's burns all over the West. Where are we going to take those resources? And they don't make the decision as to how to deploy it on a specific line, but they say, okay, we're going to give this to a general region, right? And then somebody else in that region makes the specific decision as to where it gets deployed uh, on which line. But as far as the the large sort of high-end federal agency calculus, that's happening at NIFSI, as it's called, uh, here in Boise, every day during fire season. And then, you know, what happens then also on the low, on that local level that you have is the interesting question of how the local governments are going to make a decision. The guy who does wildland firefighting here in Boise, I, I've heard him speak a number of times, and one of the things he tells people is, I've got 16 trucks, okay? So when that wildfire comes barreling down the, the hillside at your homes, I can save 16 homes. Which 16 do you want it to be? Wow. That's a real Sophie's choice there. Yeah. And, you know, I think most people just have never thought about that. They've always thought, okay, I'm used to having fire put out, right? And so there's a fire, somebody's going to come and, and, and save me. And the reality is, is that even if you're San Diego or LA or a much larger jurisdiction, the fires are much larger than the resources that the local fire department has available to them. So even the, at the city level, they'll need to be doing some serious thinking on how, how best to allocate and how fairly to, to justify who gets that support. That's right. If you're letting one house burn while you're protecting another, you know, those outcomes are very different. And it gets even more complicated because, you know, if you think about like a flood, right, you know, you imagine a flood, it's going to come in and it's going to, there are certain contours of the land where you can predict, right, you know, that one house next to another house next to another house is probably going to flood if they have the same, the same basic elevation. With fire, if you look at how if a fire comes up a hillside or, you know, down a slope and it enters into a subdivision, it actually burns in a very unusual uh, way. It's not certain that every home in that subdivision is going to burn. 
I've seen some of these uh, videos of, of the aftermath, and it, it reminds me of tornadoes where you'll see 20 homes completely leveled and then one in, in mint condition. And I, I've seen some similar uh, bizarre patterns with wildfires as well. Yeah, totally. You know, I'll just give you a, a personal anecdote. You know, I have some, some relatives that have a place up on near Shaver Lake where there was just the, the large glass fire. A, a group of homes that have been there for over a century, all of them burned in the glass fire, but for one. And why did that one survive? Who knows, right? I mean, you know, there's, it's obviously about the, the currents and the wind and the heat and the oxygen and all these various things. But that happens all the time with wildfire. It, it just makes the, the predictive nature of where you put resources that much more difficult. Before we let you go, we should touch on recovery funding. Um, that, I assume, is all done through FEMA? That's right, yeah. And so what happened, well, primarily through FEMA, and what happened uh, after Katrina, actually, was uh, Hurricane Katrina, the federal government started requiring every jurisdiction to have something called a, an all-hazard mitigation plan. And sometimes people just drop the all and call it a hazard mitigation plan. And these happen in different ways through each state can sort of choose the way that it's going to do this. But every, every jurisdiction needs to be covered. So here in Idaho, for instance, we do it at the county level. But that, that hazard mitigation plan then is going to spell out the way that the money should be used for recovery if there is a disaster, uh, and then those FEMA money uh, starts to flow. And so that becomes sort of the blueprint for if, you're, if you have a disaster of any type, wildfire being one of them, how you're going to utilize that money. And even beyond that, the, the government has to decide whether your community merits it. That's right. You're going to need that disaster declaration, right? First, or, you know, typically the way it works is that the you have a state declaration, then that permits a, a federal declaration. And you're right, you know, those are all discretionary decisions. And, you know, politics may come into play on that as to whether that declaration comes your way. So on a final note, where do we go from here? If the country is seeing increasing and increasing fires and more and more communities in these fire areas, is there a path forward, at least on the legal side? Well, you know, there is no silver bullet, and uh, I think the best way for people to contextualize it from the legal side or policy side is to think about its risk allocation. We're, we're learning to live with risk. There's increasingly heightened risk, and there just becomes a question as to who is going to bear that burden. Should it be the federal taxpayer through suppression costs? Should it be the local government bearing some responsibility for development decisions? Or the individual homeowner who maybe didn't take care of their property in a way that allowed a wildfire to, to come onto their, their land. So we'll have to think about these issues and decide societally how we address these larger uh, wildfires when we have very scarce resources to address them. Well, Professor Miller, thank you for your time today and for joining us remotely. Thanks for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.